Well, good morning again, and um, a very, very happy Resurrection Sunday to all of you. Um, my name's Johnny. If we haven't met before, then I hope that we can maybe rectify that today. Please do come and say hello to me after the service uh, this morning. It is really great to be with you for, for all four of us, uh, for myself, for Fiona and our two boys, Finley and James, who are downstairs just now. Not least because we haven't been with you since, uh, in person at least, since you decided to appoint uh, me as pastor, um, and, uh, which is no small thing. And, uh, and we're absolutely delighted and we really are very, very excited as a family to coming to Aberdeen uh, to serve you uh, and to serve with you uh, from this coming summer. And we really do appreciate your prayers for us as a family as we get ready to do that um, over the coming few weeks. And please do be assured of our prayers uh, for Hebron as a church family and all things Hebron uh, over the coming weeks and months. Now, as um, Ash has, has, has mentioned, we're going to be spending some time thinking about the resurrection this morning, which is fitting, given the day. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 27 and 28. And if you do have a Bible, uh, or even a Bible on a phone, it'd be really helpful both to me and I trust to you if you could have that open in front of you over the course of the next few minutes. And before we do that, though, let me pray for our time together. Let's pray. The psalmist writes, The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Our God and Father, we thank you that you are a speaking God. That in a world that is so often confused and confusing, that your word brings clarity. That it identifies our deepest needs and shows how in your grace you meet each of those needs. And we ask therefore Lord that as we study your word together over the coming few minutes. You would please bring clarity to each of us. Clarity about what your word says, what it tells us about you. And clarity about what that means for us, how we ought to be shaped and changed and molded as a result. We ask all these things for our joy and for your glory, and we do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, Well, um, if you could pop the next slide on, please, Donald, if there are slides up, that'd be great. Thank you. Uh, I wonder whether you would consider yourself to be fraud aware. We are uh, being encouraged more and more, aren't we, to consider whether we're doing all that we can uh, to minimize the risk of being defrauded, uh, being lied to, being impersonated or, or somehow cheated out of something. And so if you ever make a payment online, well, your bank will often prompt you to think about whether or not you really want to make that payment, whether you're sure you want to make that payment, whether you want time between deciding to make that payment and the payment going through in case you want to change your mind or not. Or when you you choose a new password for something, you're encouraged to make it so random that no one could possibly guess it, including you. And the reason for all of that is that we live in a world where fraud is a reality, where people do take advantage of other people to serve their own needs. And we're being the victim of fraud... Well, it can have really devastating consequences. All of which makes what I've come to speak to you about this morning all the more pressing. Because uh, what I've come to tell you is that quite a number of people in this room may well have fallen foul of a fraud, whether you're aware of it or not. And what's at stake isn't just whether you've sent some cash to the wrong person's bank account or whether someone can hack your Facebook page or not. 
What's at stake is the shape of your whole life and the shape, in fact, of your whole eternity. Now, as you might expect for Resurrection Sunday morning, we are thinking about the resurrection, Matthew's account in particular of the resurrection. And in Matthew's account, he wants us to be aware of two possible explanations of the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. I wonder if you noticed that. We see the first of those at the end of Matthew 27. If you have a Bible, just have a look down at that. It comes from the Jewish authorities. Chapter 27, verse 63. They call Jesus an imposter. And it wasn't just Jesus himself who was the cheat. They think they're concerned that his followers are going to be enabling that deception. So, verse 64. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest... His disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead and the last fraud will be worse than the first. The religious leaders of Jesus' day thought that he and his followers were at it. That he wasn't really the God of the universe as he claimed to be and that his followers who were so caught up in the story that that even after he had died... they would try and rescue his reputation and and rescue their own by committing fraud and the thing is if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead well there's something quite compelling about that conclusion that the Christian faith is one big fraud because Jesus had explicitly claimed he was going to die. And he then said that he would rise again three days later. And so if he didn't do that, if he did not rise from the dead, but his followers spread the story that he did, well then the whole Christian faith is one big con. But there is another explanation. There's a counterclaim in Matthew's account about the empty tomb. And it's the one that Matthew wants us to be convinced about. That second explanation says the reason that the tomb is empty is that Jesus really did physically, miraculously rise from the dead. Those are the two explanations about the empty tomb in Matthew's gospel. And Matthew wants us to be clear, not just about which one we're going to plump for, but about why it really matters Because what's at stake is the course of your whole life. As I've mentioned, if if the resurrection didn't happen, then Christians are following an imposter, then we're wasting our time. But, if Matthew's account is true, if Jesus really did physically rise from the dead, well, it means he was exactly who he claimed to be. He was God in the flesh, And that means that he has a universal claim to authority. Authority over your life and mine. Whether you would call yourself a Christian this morning, yet or not. So over the coming few minutes, we're going to just think briefly about those two explanations. We're going to think about why one is far more persuasive than the other. And we're going to think about what difference it makes depending on which one we decide to believe. Let's think about the first possible explanation under our first heading this morning. Jesus is an imposter and his followers are frauds. Verses 62 to 66 of chapter 27. Now, the Jewish leaders are very much frauds aware. Okay, They have been all the way through Jesus' life, through Matthew's account of Jesus' life. They repeatedly label him a liar. 
and a blasphemer because he claimed to be God himself. But they're also aware that, that just killing Jesus off, well, that won't do the job of killing his reputation altogether. Because baked into his message, part of his fraud as they see it, was his claim that he would rise three days after dying. And notice just in Matthew's account that the, the religious leaders don't entertain the possibility that that might actually happen. Thought doesn't enter their minds. There's no suggestion that he could rise from the dead. What they're concerned about is that some of his followers are going to come in the night and steal his body away to keep the charade going. So, of course, the answer is pretty simple. Jesus is dead and buried on Good Friday. Matthew's pretty clear about that. Everyone in his account is agreed on that. Jesus is dead and buried. All they have to do is keep the tomb under wraps for just a few days. And the fraud will be shown for what it was. Jesus' claims will die with him. So they speak to Pilate, the, the Roman official who'd overseen the crucifixion. Pilate agrees to let them turn Jesus' tomb into a high-security vault. Chapter 27, verse 65. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting a guard. Setting an armed guard and a security lock on the tomb, that would be more than enough to bring an end to this whole Jesus story. But it also has the opposite effect. Because, of course, it's true that if all of those security measures will stop people from breaking in and stealing the body, but that also means that if the body does get out somehow, through the anti-tamper device, the giant stone, the Roman guard... Well, it can't be explained by natural means, can it? And so the scene is set at the end of chapter 27. We're hanging on a cliff. And one way or t'other, by the third day, we'll have found out just who is telling tall tales. The religious leaders, or Jesus, and his followers. Let's follow Matthew to the third day to find out. Chapter 28, verses 1 to 10. Explanation 2. The resurrection is miraculous but true. Verse 1 of chapter 28, we find ourselves on Resurrection Sunday morning. The two figures who were there when the body was buried on Good Friday evening, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they are back at the tomb. When, verse 2, something extraordinary happens. There's an earthquake, just as there had been three days earlier on Good Friday. The angel rolls the stone back from the mouth of the tomb and sits on it. And when the guards see him, verse 4, well, well, they get a bit of a fright. And I wonder if you notice, notice the slice of irony there. These big strapping Roman guards who've been told to guard the tomb of a corpse, in verse 4, themselves become like corpses. Well, the corpse they're meant to be guarding, well, he's out and wandering free. Mary and Mary are both frightened too, because... Well, you would be if you met a big glowing angel first thing on a Sunday morning, wouldn't you? And the angel utters those famous verses, verse 5. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. There's the answer to the question that was set up at the end of chapter 27 as the anti-fraud security system was put in place. Set your guards if you like. 
roll any number of stones over the mouth of the tomb. If Jesus is who he claimed to be, and if his father has purposed to raise him from the dead, well, you're not going to stop him. Now, just to be sure we don't think that what's being described in Matthew is some kind of of, of metaphor, just notice the angel tells the woman, verse 7, go and have a look for yourselves. Come and see. You saw him being laid there just a couple of nights ago. You of all people. Come and have another look. And in case we still think it's some kind of metaphor, well, on their way back, in fear and joy to tell the rest of the disciples, verse 9, well, they meet Jesus himself. Greetings, he says. Hello. And they take hold of his feet. His real, touchable, tangible feet. And they worship him. Now, the events Matthew describes are extraordinary, aren't they? There is no, no getting away from that. But what I want to put to you this morning is that he doesn't pretend that they aren't, does he? It is miraculous what he describes. It's out of the ordinary. But Matthew describes that in a kind of unashamed way. Well, because that's kind of the point. People don't just rise from the dead. But Jesus' audacious promise was that he would. And according to Matthew's account, that's just what he did. Verse 6. He is risen just as he said. Matthew gives us a matter-of-fact account of what he says really physically happened. Miraculous, but true. And we all have to do something with that. Four or five years ago, a number of big British media companies commissioned a survey about religious attitudes. And they found out that of people who would identify themselves as being active Christians in the UK, just under half said that they either weren't sure... Or they didn't believe in the literal physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just under half, somewhere in the 40s percent. That's quite a high number, it seems to me. But interestingly, the majority of those who said they weren't sure about the resurrection, well, they didn't just bin the whole of the Christian faith. Instead, they they read the resurrection as a metaphor, as, as a kind of picture of a spiritual reality. You might have heard people saying that kind of thing before. I recently read one church minister put it this way. He said, the meaning of the resurrection is that we can face the dawn of each new day with courage. Now that sounds quite profound, doesn't it? And maybe it reflects your view on the resurrection too. Maybe you feel you can get on board with with some of Jesus' teachings and, and with the good things he did with loving your neighbor and turning the other cheek, but... Well, rising from the dead, physically rising from the dead, that doesn't fit with a rational worldview, does it? And so the only way to square the circle is to treat it as a metaphor or a fable. But I want you to see this morning, in Matthew's account of the resurrection, that kind of halfway house that allows it to be both kind of true and also kind of not quite true at the same time, well, it's not really possible. Either it happened miraculously, but it happened, or it didn't happen. And Matthew would have you choose one way or the other. So let's go back to the question we've been occupied with this morning. Who in this story is trying to defraud you? 
Who is at it? According to Matthew's account, it isn't Jesus. It isn't his followers. Yes, what happens miraculous, but it did happen. And actually, in what comes next, we see that the accusers, well, they become the accused. Just look at that with me. Verses 11 to 15 of chapter 28. The inconvenient truth of the resurrection. Now, you may or may not have seen the TV series Line of Duty over the past few years. The series caused a bit of a a furore last year. It's um, all about a fictional anti-corruption unit in the police. Their job is to find corrupt police officers and to bring them to justice. And so it's it's, it's pretty kind of swashbuckling stuff with cliffhangers and plot twists and car chases and and a Scotsman putting on a pretty ropey Cockney accent. And I'm not going to give any spoilers away in case you haven't seen it yet, but one of the big threats that's kind of hung over all of the series so far is whether any of the anti-corruption officers will themselves be found guilty of fraud. That would just be the twist of all twists as the accusers become the accused. And the reason I mention that is that in Matthew's account, that's just the kind of twist that happens. I wonder if you noticed it. The resurrection has taken place. We read in verse 11 that the priests and the elders are told by the soldiers, those terrified soldiers who were guarding the tomb, they're told what happened, that the tomb was empty, not because Jesus' followers took the body, but because he's risen and left himself. Now, the religious leaders knew Jesus had promised this would happen. And so what you would expect them to do at this point is at the very least to ask some more questions, to look into the matter further. But just read what they do instead. Verse 12. When they'd assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. It is another one of the ironies in the story, isn't it? That the people who on Good Friday were so concerned about a resurrection fraud are now the ones perpetrating an outrageous resurrection fraud. And as it happens, their fraud gains some traction. We know that it did because Matthew tells us, verse 15, theirs is the story that was being spread when Matthew was writing his account a number of years later. And actually, we know from other evidence from outside of the Bible that even in the mid-2nd century, this story was still one that was quite popular amongst certain sects of Judaism. Now, why does Matthew tell us about that? Well, I think because he wants each of us to decide which story we're going to believe. Whether Jesus really rose or whether he didn't. Because both stories can't be true. You see that? A fudged answer is no answer at all. And so let me ask you this morning, which story are you going to believe? And as you do that, it is just worth clocking one more detail. It's often suggested that the the Christian faith is is wishful thinking. That people could only believe in something as extraordinary as the resurrection because it makes life easier for them in one way or another. But just notice in Matthew's account, quite the opposite is true. The resurrection 
as a historical fact, was actually going to make life pretty tricky for the religious leaders. You see, they threatened their authority. And so they're making up an alternative narrative. Well, it kind of just made life easier for them. It kind of covered it up. It meant they didn't really have to make a decision at all. And can I just say, well, it was ever thus. A friend of mine recently told me about someone they'd met who wasn't a Christian, but who'd come along to a course that helped her to explore some of the claims of the Christian faith. She'd really enjoyed it. This is just over the past few months. She was becoming more and more convinced that the claims of Jesus as set out in the Bible are true. But the problem, you see, was that her parents had had difficulties with, with organized religion, with established churches before, And in fact, they'd warned her against going to that kind of course at all. And so her decision ultimately about whether the resurrection of Jesus was true or not, well, she didn't make it based on the evidence alone. It was also based on the real life consequences of making that decision. And as at today, as far as I'm aware, she's yet to make that decision whether to follow Jesus or not. Because the cost of doing so in her mind is just too great. Perhaps you find yourself in that kind of situation where believing in the resurrection of Jesus isn't just to you a matter of what's true or what's not true, but where it has all sorts of personal implications for you and you're just not sure whether it's worth it. Well, if that is you, if that's where you find yourself this morning, I hope you can see that at the very least fudging things is no answer at all. A spiritual resurrection, for example, is not a viable explanation in Matthew's view. Either it happened or it didn't. And secondly, I think it is important and fair to be clear that your suspicions about what it looks like to believe in the resurrection, well, they might actually be true. If the resurrection did happen, it does have radical implications it will turn your life upside down. Let's think about that briefly under our final heading, the radical implications of the resurrection. Now, it is Resurrection Sunday today, and so it's a Sunday where Christians all over the world will be rejoicing in the hope of resurrection life, rejoicing that death itself has been defeated by the resurrection of Jesus. And that is true. It is wonderfully true, isn't it? Others will be, will be rejoicing that the resurrection means humanity's relationship with God is now secure. We can know for certain that Jesus' death on the cross was absolutely enough. It dealt with the rift between humanity and God once and for all. And again, that is wonderfully true. But I wonder if you noticed that those aren't quite the implications that Matthew lands on at the end of his account of the resurrection story. Just look again at verse 16 and following. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now that might not be where we expect the story to end. 
rather than a note of assurance for, for Christians, for believers in the face of death, a note of triumph over sin, over evil, Matthew ends, Jesus ends on a claim of authority. Can you see that? Jesus' own authority. Authority which gives him every right to call people to follow him. A universal authority over all things in heaven and on earth. Now that might be a surprise ending in some ways. And yet in light of all we thought about this morning, well it really shouldn't be. As we've thought about, if the resurrection didn't happen, if it didn't really take place, then frankly, we've no more reason to listen to Jesus than we do any other spiritual teacher or moral leader. And in fact, we probably have less, because his, his biggest and final claim about himself, well, it would be a lie, wouldn't it? How can we trust anything else he said? But if he did rise from the dead... As Matthew claims, persuasively claims he did. As an extraordinary amount of eyewitness testimony shows he did. Well, it proves that he was who he claimed to be. He was God in the flesh, walking among us. And that means he has real and universal authority Authority to call people, people like you and me, to follow him. To call us to go and tell other people this good news. Now perhaps you're here this morning and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian. And if that is you, then we are absolutely delighted you're here this morning. It's a great Sunday to be here on Easter Sunday morning. And and, and we really do hope you feel welcome. Not just just now, but even after uh, the service has finished, the more structured part of the service has finished, please do stay around and chat with us. But I hope you've been able to see that the Bible does just give us those two options when it comes to the resurrection. Either his followers, a, a group of scared and pretty hapless fishermen, managed to pull off the biggest heist and fraud in history, or it really happened. There is no middle ground in Matthew's account. It's one way or the other. And so what I want you to to, to leave you with this morning, what I want you to leave here with this morning, is the question, where do you land on that? What really happened that first Easter Sunday? Now, if you have questions about it, we'd be absolutely delighted to speak about them with you. Please do grab me after the service, or, or, or talk with the person who brought you along this morning, maybe. Maybe you could even read one of the accounts of Jesus' life together. And just chat about it and see what it really says. I'd really encourage you to do that uh, if you're up for doing so. But whatever you do, don't just ignore this stuff. Don't just brush it off. Why? Well, because someone is committing a fraud on you. Either Jesus and his followers or the religious leaders. Make sure you're believing the right one. Now, perhaps you are a Christian, perhaps you believe the resurrection to be true, and if that is you, I hope that seeing Matthew's account has kind of reinforced the rightness of that belief. 
And perhaps you're thankful this Easter Sunday for the wonderful freedom that that resurrection news brings. Freedom from guilt, knowing that your sin has been dealt with. Freedom from death, knowing that you don't need to fear it anymore. And it's true, it's wonderfully true. And we rejoice in that together this morning. But as well as freeing you from sin and freeing you from guilt and freeing you from death's ultimate sting... Well, the resurrection also places an unavoidable call on each one of our lives. It vindicates Jesus' claim to authority over your life and mine, authority over this world. And so Matthew's account finishes with the resurrected, authoritative Jesus Christ commanding us to go and tell people that good news. And so to you this morning, the question I want to leave you with is, will you go? Perhaps to the other side of the world. Perhaps to the other side of your office. Or the staff room. Or the dinner table. Will you tell other people the good news of Jesus? Of a death-defying, sin-crushing, risen, reigning Lord Jesus Christ. It is wonderful good news. And he promises he'll be with you as you go. And so as we close, let me ask him for his help as we each look to do that over the coming days. Let me pray for us now. Our God and Father, we thank you and we praise you for the cross and for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the confidence we can have that it is a historical event, that it really happened. And we thank you that because it really happened, it is of the most profound importance. We ask, Lord, that for those of us who don't yet believe in the resurrection, that we aren't yet sure, we pray, Lord, even in the quiet of our own hearts just now, you would please be gently convincing us of the truth of it. And we ask, Lord, for those of us who do believe in the resurrection, who are convinced of the truth of it, you would give us even greater certainty. And greater certainty, not just for its own sake, but that we might go and tell. Just as you've called us to do, Lord Jesus. That other people might know the freedom, the joy of death defeated, of sin and its consequences dealt with. And of an eternity in right relationship with you, our wonderful and loving Heavenly Father. We ask all of these things this Resurrection Sunday morning for our joy and for your glory. And we do so in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.